Like if your mom was still alive, you wouldn't be at the crystal shop being like, so this one brings you protection and this one, yeah. <laughs> like, which I also, I completely understand because I go to a rock shop. All right. <laughs> I'm like, I need something for like a sensitive 11 year old. Yes. I literally just yeah. went to a crystal shop at the beginning of this year. I was like, you know what? <laughs> Yep. Mm-hmm. I need a rose quartz. Yes. Yes. I sleep with one. So <laughs> there's one in my pocket right now. Yes. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is terrible. Thanks for asking. And that is Taz Ahmed. Taz is also a crystal person, or like we aren't people who are made of crystals, although I wish. But she's a person who likes crystals which are cool. And she's a sister, a daughter, a granddaughter. She's a writer, an activist, a podcaster. You know, I was raised in Islam. My family's from Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is in South Asia. And there's a lot of mysticism that kind of mixes with Islam in South Asia. So I was kind of, I was raised very Islamically in this kind of orthodox way. But there's there was some elements of mysticism that would kind of come into that. There are certain things that just seem to make sense no matter how you're raised, like how a rose quartz could potentially heal a broken heart. Death tends to change the way we see things. Maybe briefly, maybe we'll just be a little bit nicer than we need to be for a little while, and maybe forever. Maybe the world will always look different, always be different. It just depends on who we lose. So before that, um, if I would have been like, here's some crystals to help heal you, you would have said, you're being ridiculous. It's so silly. I mean, I would probably say they're very pretty and I'd probably come up with some geological like, oh, that probably was created because of a sedimentary formation (laughs) or volcanic rock lava or something. I don't know. I was really into geology growing up, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have, like, been like, oh, this has mystical properties to it. Because I think, you know, also in Islam, we were, that's not what we were, I was trained with. I was taught that within Islam, you're just supposed to be so, believe in the prophet, read the Quran, believe in one God, and that's it. Mysticism, supernatural stuff, wasn't officially a part of Taz's upbringing. But unofficially, it also kind of was. Actually, my mom would would call my grandfather right after my grandmother died. My mom would call him daily. And my mom said that my grandfather would feel my grandmother in his in bed with him. It would scare him at first. So he'd run up and go turn on the light. And she wasn't sleeping next to him. And he thought he was going crazy. Then he'd go back to bed and then the lights would be off. And then he would feel her. And I think as he got more comfortable with the idea that my grandmother was keeping him company, he just kind of started accepting it. And my mom always told me that um, rattlesnakes were kind of this omen for death. And she would always she would always tell us throughout our life whenever she would have a ra- dream about a rattlesnake, she's like, oh my gosh, I had this dream about a snake, something bad's going to happen. And we would always be kind of like, yeah, mom, whatever. Her mother's dreams, her grandfather's sense that his wife's spirit was nearby, to Taz... It all seemed like nothing. One day, Taz was talking with her mom on the phone. Her voice was kind of shaky, and she said, oh, I think I'm getting sick. And she wasn't really making sense, so I had her 
hand the phone off to my younger sister. I was like, what's wrong with mom? And she said, oh, she's just sick. She was out in the garden and nothing's wrong. She's, she'll be fine. And that night I had a dream. And in this dream, we're in the desert and it's kind of like a rocky desert. There's all these kind of like Death Valley with all these kind of dry, brown, huge, bouldery kinds of rocks. And I heard rattlesnakes. And on the corner, um, to the side, there was this room with a door. And my mom was on the other side of the door inside the room. And I was kind of just watching from the outside all of this. The rattlesnake was in front of the door. And I was trying to tell her not to come out of the room. Two days later, Taz's mother was dead. So obviously that was a sign, right? And Taz should have called her mother and warned her, given her a heads up. Got a snake in my dream. No? Yes? Maybe. And that brings us back to that idea that death has the power to shift our perspective. It has the power to illuminate our previous thoughts and feelings and experiences, to highlight what we never would have seen and cast shadows that we hadn't noticed before. Because I really thought when my mom talked about rattlesnakes in dreams, I just was like, you're, you're being silly. But after this, it was just so powerful. And it was such a big, like, slap in your face kind of a symbol. Like, hey, you dreamt about this rattlesnake in a dream and your mom actually died. Like, it was like I couldn't avoid it anymore. And so then I was like, well, what else has been happening in life that I was pretending wasn't real but is actually real? For me, as soon as my mom died, all the things that were unbelievable were all of a sudden believable. Taz is widely known for her exceptional podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, in which she's sometimes the bad Muslim and sometimes the good Muslim, like me, who is mostly a bad Christian when it comes to following an actual church and a good Christian in that I think Jesus would like me as a person. Point being... What you believe is complicated and can be subject to change without notice. The world just got shook. Like, it, it was turned into this frightening place in some ways. I mean, it was already frightening because without my mom, who was the glue to our family, it just, you know, the floor fell out. And we, particularly because of where we were in that time in life, me and my sisters were all unemployed. We were a blue-collar family. Like, financially, we are just kind of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Um, but in, in this sense of what is real and what isn't real, I, I just started being more curious about what other beliefs there were and what other ways of navigating the world there was. And there's room for all this stuff. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through college. There's a lot of mysticism and Catholicism, but they're not going to bring that to you in second grade. Yeah. They're really not going to bring it to you at all, but... Um, and and there's, like, so much space for it. And, you know, in so many ways, like, my parents would kind of look down on that kind of stuff, too. Totally. So, you know, my dad would be like, oh, that's, you know, you can't be a cafeteria Catholic. I'm like, why wouldn't you want to be? Why wouldn't you want to be efficient with your beliefs and take take what you want <laughs> and add to it from some different lunch lines and then come up with something that's personally satisfying to you? That sounds brilliant. Yeah. Um, that sounds like exactly what I want, actually. Now that her mother was dead and everything was on the table, Taz started to look again at her beliefs. 
And one thing she was deeply curious about was something called the veil. Um, yeah, let's talk about the veil. Oh, quick pause. Little parenthetical here, because when you say the words veil and Islam together, a very specific image may come to mind for most people. But we're talking about like a spiritual veil. Someone was talking about how their child, I think their baby was maybe like six months old, was babbling to, to something in a corner. And the parents had walked in and they were like, what are you talking to? And they, they couldn't see anything in the corner, but the baby saw something. And so it kind of speaks to how this um, babies are able to, to not have that veil in front of them. They're able to see into the fourth dimension, as I've been calling it. I don't actually know if it's called a fourth dimension, but I think I was kind of raised with that never-ending story way of thinking about different dimensions. And then they also say that right before you die, that veil uh, is lifted and then you're also able to see what's out there. The veil actually represents a common concept across a lot of faith structures, the idea that there is a thin space between life and death, and that veil is lifted when we're near death or when we're babies or when we're quiet and contemplative, prayerful, meditative. For Taz, the rattlesnake dream she had of her mother might have been her first personal encounter with the veil. I hadn't told anyone about the dream until I had returned to L.A. And, and I told my my middle sister, and she can actually feel my mom. So at my mom's funeral, my that sister felt my mom brushing the back of her head and kind of like rubbing her back. And I was, I was so jealous of that, that that sister could feel that. Despite her jealousy, both Taz and her middle sister agreed that their dead mother had started showing up for them in small ways. About a month after she passed, this black cat started coming around the front of our house. And it was very loving. It was like wanting to be petted. It wouldn't shy away. And our house isn't an animal house. All of us are allergic to animals. We called it Casper. Casper's probably not mom, but it was probably sent by mom to kind of watch over us and is always trying to get inside the house and is always trying to go straight into my mom's bedroom. I think it's just kind of accepted that it's probably somehow connected to mom. And mom was also showing up in bigger ways. My sisters called me. They were like, you have a letter from the White House. It was like literally two weeks after my mom had died. And they were like, oh, it's because mom wanted you to go. And this is how it happened. I was like, I'm pretty sure that I probably have, you know, some sort of other connection there that got me into the White House. But no. I think, you know, everyone was saying like, oh, you got this. It was for API Heritage Month, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And it was an event there. And they were like, no, no, you got this because, you know, your mom wants you to go. As time went on, Taz really, really wanted contact from her mom, not just invitations to the White House. She wanted to feel her, to talk to her. Instead, her mother started visiting Taz in her dreams. You know, I would sleep a lot. Uh, I would not be able to wake up from dreams. And I would just kind of be stuck in this dreamlike place that wasn't really awake and was kind of, you know, not, not fully asleep either. I was just always just trying to see her in those dreams. One of the first dreams I had after she died, it took a, a, about maybe a few weeks or maybe a month. She came to my dream kind of like bloody 
and her face was decomposing. She came like a zombie. And I like super freaked out in my dream. And I think she was trying to talk to me and I, I ran out to the middle of the street. And then, you know how you keep having like multiple dreams? So I think I, I went back to sleep and then she came to me that like in another dream that she wasn't in zombie form and then she apologized for it. And just telling this right now, I'm just like, this is this is the first time I'm telling anyone about this. But it's just so bizarre how I was able to justify it. Yet in some ways it makes complete sense to me because it's like, well, if it's your first time visiting someone in a dream and you have no control over how you look in your dream, you know, that's going to take some practice. And the dreams were great, but Taz wanted more. She wanted to feel her mother while she was awake. And there had been so many monumental moments where this should have happened. Like when she saw her sisters for the first time after their mom's death or when they washed their mother's body before the funeral. But no, nothing. Her sister had felt their mom, and that's what Taz wanted. A few months later, Taz was at a summer camp she planned for South Asian voters, seated across from a woman that she'd never met before. I was obviously really sad because it had been so soon after she had died. And I, I think I was talking about how I just was really missing her. And then this woman, she looks to me and she goes, you look like her, you have her cheeks. And I was like how do you know this? And she says, well, she's standing right behind you right now. And I like flipped my shit. I was like, what is happening right now? What do you mean she's standing behind me? And then she's like, when a spirit is standing behind you, that means they have your back. It means that they're supporting you. I was like, can you, you're seeing her right now. I'm sobbing. She's like, yes. And then she was like, well, I, I can stop if you don't want me to go on, but you know, she's, she is right next to you and she'll always be by your side. And she says that my mom was surrounded by small birds and my mom was really into hummingbirds. So I think that's probably what, what that was. And she was saying that my mom wanted me to take all of the blue saris that were in her closet, which it just... That felt a little silly because I was like, well, we're all going to be taking all of her saris anyway. So I guess we'll <laughs> Mom, take we're her already, blue saris. Yeah, yeah we, we got this. Um, and she like wanted us to go do like a, a, some sort of a closure ceremony at the beach. And we were just, I was just like, I don't know what that means. And here I am sobbing in the corner. It wasn't even the corner. We were in the middle of the room. It felt, it felt like it was exactly what I needed. I was like, oh, okay, this is, maybe this is how I'm getting sent that message. And um, when she was talking to me, I was like, oh, I already knew all this. Like, she just kind of confirmed a lot of the feelings I had inside me. Yeah. I don't know why I need someone from the outside to tell me that, but it was kind of more of a confirmation than it was a surprise because I can also sense that. get all of this on like a deep, deep level. Death ends the suffering for the dead and just passes it all on to the living. We're just stuck here on Earth with our Earth problems, wondering what comes next, feeling left out and left behind. And it is so normal to be desperate for the people we love and we lost. So Taz has this new outlook 
She doesn't really know where it's taking her, but she's open to new stuff. Crystals, psychics. I'm not supposed to pay for psychics in Islam. And she has not paid for them, Taz's dad. She has not. She's open within her existing beliefs during this new period of opening her mind. And then her aunt calls. For us, it's time we took some calls from our sponsors and friends. Like I said, we're going to make a phone call because I like making phone calls. So today we are calling a member of the Terrible Club. It's our little... Facebook group of supporters of the podcast. Hello. Oh my gosh, it worked. Hi, it's Nora. Hi, Nora. Hi, how are you? I'm good and I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. Okay. Uh, Mahaley, thank you for being in the Terrible Club. Are you glad you joined the Terrible Club? I am. I'm really glad. What does it mean to you? Um, when I was at my lowest point, it was like a community that came around me. You know, I'm an, uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous and I also... You know, have that community, but like to have a community that like realizes that when someone asks, "How are you doing?" and for me to be able to say, "I feel really bad right now," and here's why. Like, I I love that feeling. I would like to tell you that your son brings me a lot of laughter yeah. in your Instagram stories. <laughs> Wait, so... Do you see his post? I don't know when he started talking like a YouTuber. <laughs> hey boys, I'm with mom, and it's totally awesome. Like. <laughs> What? Oh my gosh. Well, honestly, thank you. Thank you for being a part of everything. And I'm here cheering you on. All right. Well, thank you. If you would like to join the Terrible Club, you can go to ttfa.org slash donate. If you do, I think $5 a month or more, you get in the club. And we're back. If you ever want to talk to someone on the phone, just call me. I always answer. It's now been three years since Taz's mom has died. And her aunt calls out of the blue, and she has a request for Taz. Taz's aunt had worked for an embassy, and that job led her to travel the world. And for the past several years, she'd been living in Kathmandu, Nepal. Also living in the house with her was Taz's grandfather, her mom's dad. They were like, oh, he's cantankerous. We need you to come out here to take care of him for two weeks because... The youngest aunt wanted to go to England for her son's college graduation. I was like, well, why do you need me there? Because you have all this help because it's an embassy house, so they have maids and a cook and stuff. They were like, well, we just want your company. Like, we just need a family member there because we can't leave him alone with, with all the help. And I was like, well, this seems like a very long trip to make just for this bit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like, well, maybe I'll get some writing done, maybe. Uh, and I really was thinking no one in my immediate family had seen my grandfather since my mom had died. I had talked to him after mom died, and I had this intention of writing him a letter, kind of explaining everything that had happened. And the letter was half written, and I was like, you know what, I should just go. Like, I'm the oldest of his grandchildren. I need to go and 
be, be the messenger from this side of the family. The house is a huge embassy house in Kathmandu, three stories tall with a big gate and a fence and even guards. Taz's aunt has glaucoma and her grandfather hasn't been doing very well for some time. So all of the actual living in the house happens exclusively on the second floor. Taz's grandfather had worked in railroads, and when he did, he had been tall and regal and meticulous in his appearance. One of Taz's earliest memories of him was her grandfather teaching her to iron creases. Perfect. Crisp. He commanded authority and order. After 28 hours of travel, Taz arrives. It's dark. I think when I came to the house... I, you know, he was just, he was just this kind of like folded man, just kind of like a deflated balloon. It's like seeing like, yeah, like tracing paper versions of a person that you love. That's a beautiful way to put it. It definitely was a tracing paper version. Taz's aunt shows her around the house. She gives Taz care instructions for her aging grandfather. I see all the work she's doing for my grandfather. She has to put in eye drops and she has to put in his patch and he has to eat his food at certain times in the day. And, and I was like, yeah, I can do this. This is fine. But then just like when I would sit and talk with him, it was, I didn't realize how exhausting it would be. So this was not the casual let's go see grandpa visit that Taz had expected. And it wasn't the grandfather she had expected either. I think my aunt probably told me after I arrived, she's like, yeah, he's kind of, he's just old, but, you know, he's not remembering things right. And I was like, are you sure he doesn't have Alzheimer's? She's like, no, 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 we got him checked out. He doesn't have Alzheimer's. Her grandfather is a curmudgeon, but he's also kind of confused for someone who definitely doesn't have Alzheimer's. One night... Taz could hear some kind of commotion between her grandfather and one of the men who had helped take care of him. It was a night where he didn't sleep well. And the next morning, I talked to my grandfather. I said, what happened last night? And he said that thieves had come and they were looking for his watches. And he walks over to his bed and he lifts up the pillow. And he's like, I hid the watches under my pillow so that they wouldn't find them. And at the time, he was wearing two watches. And I was like, we have security. There's no way any thief would be able to come into this house. But that was his reality, was that someone had, there were thieves that were out to steal one of his two watches that he had to keep underneath his pillows. Taz's grandfather keeps seeing the world as though he's a much, much younger man. I was so upset by that. It was, it was just, you know... I didn't exist, so he kept confusing me for my mom, and that was so painful. He kept calling me by my mom's nickname, which was Shipu. And I was like, that's that's my mom, that's not me. I'm I'm Tinzila. And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was it was tough. That was tough. And he did something for us to have designed in an isolated island. So I, 
Alexander Salkar. Alexander Salkar? Yes. Was the name of that poem. By, wait, who is the poem by? Uh, I, I, I don't remember. Okay. So the poem's name is Alexander Salkar. Yeah. I can Google that. It's the Bible. It's a very nice, and it ends up like that. How does it go again? Society, friendship, and love divinely bestowed upon men. Society, friendship, and love divinely bestowed upon men. Divinely bestowed upon men. Oh, had I the wings of a dove, how should not like rescue again? Oh, how I wish I had the wings of a dove? How soon How that soon? I taste you again? Soon that I taste you again. Uh, and we had a very rough uh, relationship because um, he had a very British English, a very colonial way of speaking English, and I have a very American way of speaking English. So he didn't really understand a lot of what of what I was saying. He wasn't really good at listening. He was just kind of talking. And, you know, that's also kind of hard to be in a conversation with someone where you're just not able to talk and be heard. And also, there was his medication. I think I was wandering around in his room, reading the boxes and just realizing that what medicines I was actually giving him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this this is like medicine you give to people who are losing their memory. That's when it became a little bit clearer. So one day, Taz is giving her grandfather the medication for the dementia everyone claimed he didn't have. It was a little dime-sized, rice-paper-thin patch that I had to apply to his skin. And his skin was so fragile by then that it had had imprints of past patches on it. And I couldn't find a place to put the patch where his skin wasn't already peeling. And I really wanted to not put that patch on him. I just I just wanted to see. I wanted to see what would happen if I didn't put this patch on. Would he be able to see my grandmother and would he be able to see mom and would he be able to communicate with them? Because especially at that time, that must have been three years after mom died, I was so craving this communication with my mom. And I was I would have done anything at that time to figure out a way to talk to her that I felt that if if my grandfather could see her, then maybe I could just give him a message to give to her. Or maybe he could see her and I could just sit next to him. And I wanted to kind of manipulate his his access to reality that way. Taz is, in this moment, so hungry for a word from her mother that she is considering using her grandfather as a psychological experiment. Like, does she just skip the patch today and see if he can just maybe see his daughter? I mean, do you? What do you do? Taz pauses before she applies this patch. She asks her grandfather, Do you see my mother? She can tell by his face that he's struggling to understand. He talks about how his wife is by his side every night and how he talks to her. He says that Taz's mom is there sometimes late at night as well. And then he trails off, 
he looks off into the distance and returns suddenly. Taz can tell he's annoyed by her questions now. He says, is there any use to having these memories? Tell me. It was so dark when he said that. Because I think my grandfather was in a concentration camp in the 1970s. He was put in a concentration camp um, when Bangladesh got gained its independence from Pakistan. So they had been in Lahore. So one of the stories that he would always tell us was how he got picked up uh, in his house and how he got he had to take this bus down and he had to stay in this camp and um, for six months and how he didn't really eat food there. And so, you know, this this memory, the story that he tells us of being in this camp really shapes how I practice my social justice work today. I use these narratives to really shape my activism now of why we as Muslim Americans need to fight back against the Muslim ban and we need to fight for our rights to be Muslim Americans in the U.S. because we can't let these things that have happened in the past happen again. And that's why these memories are so important to me, especially because I really use his experience and his memory of being sent to a camp for the reasons why I do my work nowadays. So when he says stuff like that, what's, what's the use of memories? It's like, I, I guess it's not really his memory anymore. It kind of, I need his memory. I need that legacy to carry on so that I can continue to do the work that I do and so that I have a reason why I do the work that I do. Taz's grandfather, after a long life, is done with these memories, but Taz isn't. Of course there's worth to these memories, Grandpa. The memories we share with others become shared. They increase the size of the world. They have meaning to people outside of whomever created them. They take on new life as comfort, as context, as inspiration. That is literally the entire point of the show. But in that room with that patch hovering over his arm. It's not about the world. It's just Taz and her grandfather, and maybe, if she's lucky, her mom, too. I think he was just alone. I think he was so alone. He didn't have any more friends, and his wife was gone, and his daughter was gone. I think he really didn't have a reason to hold on to memories. All he was doing was walking his hundred steps on the balcony and eating his food. And his his world had become very small by then. He would get very upset if he didn't get his mangoes every day. It's like he has this small physical, I mean, he's in a big house, but he's confined to a really small part of it. And then he has this big, scary sort of psychological world. Yeah. Where he can see his wife, he can see his child, he can see... Also, terrible people breaking into his home and trying to steal his watches. And you have the opposite. Like, you are trying to see beyond. And you have this huge world. You have all this possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's comfort in knowing that my grandmother was keeping him company. But I think the fear that someone must feel when you think that thieves are coming to take you in the middle of the night and steal things. I think that's that's a different kind of uh, veil being lifted. What's the other evil 
evil energy that might be also coming in there too. And that was that was the frightening part about being in that house, just because I, I, I think there was a lot of bad energy in that house. So Taz does put on the patch, and her grandfather gets the medication for his dementia. And the veil stays opaque. Taz completes her 11 days alone with her grandfather and returns to Los Angeles. She knows she won't see her grandfather again, but she's done her best to document the memories he shared with her. His memories are hers now. I think that I'm a writer because I have terrible memory. And the the act of writing is an act of remembering. And I, I got really obsessed with this idea that what if I grow old and I forget my memories? I want to at least have it, have it be written out. But some things don't get written out. Taz is not a baby. She's not an old person with dementia. She's not near death or dead. The veil is not hers to control or to pull her way through. And that doesn't mean she can't have access to it, just that it's not hers to control. She can have her crystals and her religion and her psychics that she does not pay for, Dad. And she can have her mom. When her mom chooses to lift that veil. Maybe in a cat. Maybe in a White House invitation. Unlikely. Now, I'm guessing. And maybe in the wind. On the day we buried her, it was wildly gusty. In, in the graveyard and I, ever since then every time we go to the grave I'll feel like like my ankles being tickled by wind and I'm like oh okay that's that's mom sending a little message This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McNerney. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Our project manager is Hannah Meacock-Ross. Muna Shekhomar is our intern and a lovely person. Muna, Hannah, and Samara Freemark gave us excellent notes on this episode, so thank you. And thank you to Taz for sharing this. Taz also has an essay in the book Modern Loss, which is out now. And you can just read a lot about Taz. Taz writes a lot. She's very talented. Taz's handle on the internet is Tazzy Star. Very clever. And her podcast is Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. It's very good. Get it on the internet with all the other podcasts. We have live shows coming up. We have two at the Fitzgerald Theater here in St. Paul, April 13th, April 14th. Go to FitzgeraldTheater.org and buy your tickets. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson, who's also excellent. And we are a part of American Public Media, APM. APM.